There had been a lot of movement and noise at the dockyards that night, and I was called in to check it out. A lot of people living in the surrounding low-income apartment complexes were complaining about otherworldly noises coming from the harbor. Now, mind you, this is not usually the job of a federal marshal. It would normally be the job of the docks manager, or even a simple officer. We called the docks manager and asked him to check the ins and outs. Also contacted the Coast Guard to make sure all ships sailing through international waters were actually allowed to. Nothing seemed very off. The manager said something about doing business with China and Japan. He couldn't tell me what was being transported, however. Nothing illegal, he swore. But his voice sounded... Well, it sounded like he had absolutely no clue what was going on with those shipments. Or what they entailed at all. It was highly unusual since Jim liked to know what went in and out of the docks. Another thing that was particularly strange about the situation was that the Coast Guard didn't notice an increase in activity either. It made me, as well as a few officials, jittery. Like we felt there was something illegal going on, but we still needed to gather proof and evidence. I couldn't just show myself at the docks and expect to be well received and have all my questions answered. I needed a warrant and all that stupid paperwork that would allow me to be a good marshal. While I live on the west coast and, well, we're all pretty relaxed around here, I still needed to follow the law. I knew Jim, the harbor manager, since, well, about 20 years now. He was a good man, so when he said there was nothing illegal, well, I believed him. One, because he wasn't the type to take bribe money. People had tried in the past and hit a moral wall with him. And two, because he was a simple man. He didn't like things to be complicated. In any case, something was definitely off. Now keep in mind I am not an FBI agent, nor am I CIA or anything like an inspector. But I started to build the case. First, with the complaints coming from the neighbors. Then I asked for an order that allowed me to have a clear look on the ins and outs of the harbor. Reports from the Coast Guard, too. I started building my file adding weight into it for the moment I'd present my case to a judge. But at that moment, all I had was my gut telling me that something was going on. I was running around in circles. After two months, all I had was nothing but a growing complaint folder and a pile of unusable reports from both the Coast Guard and Jim, the Harbor Master. Then, an opportunity arose. In retrospect, I probably shouldn't call it an opportunity. Let's just say something happened that gave me a reason to be there and sleuth around the docks. His name was Richard Tremblay. His ID said he was from Vancouver, and I supposed he was an employee of one of the ships that probably fell over and drowned. There were a few every year, unfortunately. This was my assumption until I actually entered the harbor and saw Jim's pale face. He had been the one to discover the body. Apparently, Richard was wearing his life vest when they found him floating face down in the harbor. I followed Jim to his office before going to see the body. The poor guy looked like he aged 40 years in one night and could probably use a coffee. It wasn't a good morning at work when you're doing a routine check and you find a dead body. 
Once in his office, he locked the door, checked through the curtains, and prepared the coffee. When he sat in front of me, well, I could feel the tension in the air. It was electric. He was looking around his office like someone looking for a bug. You know, a hidden camera or a microphone that would sell out what he was about to say. He told me, you need to check out the containers, but not today. Today you take care of this poor man. I explained to him that I just couldn't come here without a warrant, that he and I could face legal prosecution for trespassing other people's property. At that moment, Jim exploded, asked me if I could use the murder to make a real investigation. And again, I knew something was wrong. Jim had always been quiet, good man with solid morals, the kind of guy you can depend on. I asked him what was wrong through his angry mumbling. I deciphered this much. China and Japan paid the U.S. government a large amount to close their eyes on the shipments passing by this harbor, and Jim had been told essentially to turn a blind eye. He couldn't tell me before, because he signed a non-disclosure agreement, but now that there was a dead body, it didn't sit right with him anymore. Not that it ever did, but when your government tells you to look the other way, well, you look the other way. And that's when I realized it wasn't a regular drowning, and that my guts were right. Something was definitely happening, and now I had the express permission from the harbor master to check everything. It wasn't all very legal, but then again, legality is not always right. I told Jim that I'd stay quiet and advise him to take a few days off. Let his son or someone he trusts handle the harbor for a couple of weeks, or at least until all this settled down. I took a sip of coffee. It was disgusting. I think Jim put three times the amount of recommended coffee in it. Never had a coffee tasted so bitter. I deposited my cup on his desk, gave him a friendly pat on his shoulder as well as a squeeze, and I left his office so that I could get to the body. Let me tell you something. It wasn't a pretty sight. Even before reaching the body bag, I could see how deformed it was. It was caving in places it wasn't supposed to cave, like the chest and head area. And as I walked there, the first inspector on site started talking to me to prepare me for what I was about to see. I couldn't really do much more than give a look at the body and read his ID. There was already an investigation going on. As one would put it, it was above my pay grade. Which wasn't surprising if it was all related to the weird stuff that had been happening lately. Even more so if our beloved government was involved. But, even as I was preparing myself for something terrible, nothing could have prepared me for the sight of this man's body as they unzipped the bag. At first, aren't they glad they found his wallet in his pocket? Because there was no way this man could have been identified. I mean, sure, Prince could have been a thing, but dental recognition was out of the equation since the man's whole face was gone. It was like something shoved a sucker on this guy's face and turned it on until nothing but a clean hole in the back of the skull could be seen. From forehead to chin, everything was gone. The brain, gone. 
eyes, nose, anything including skull and bones were gone. All that was left was a jagged cut. If you ask me, it looked like something big took a bite of this guy's head and ate his entire face, and then licked the inside clean. His torso wasn't in much better condition. It had been split in half and the bones had been rearranged. And by rearranged, I mean some of them were missing. Some were broken. Some were bent at an awkward angle. The ribcage, for example, was stretched to the side and twisted strangely. What was left of the man's skin looked like lion's scratchboard. It was covered in claw marks and there were gnarly gashes all over the place. His legs were a bit bloated and purplish, but it was probably due to his body sitting in the water for a couple of hours. Whatever did that to him wasn't something found in the water for sure. He had been torn to shreds and fell off into the water. His life vest what was left of it, was soaked in blood. I don't know how I managed to look at all these details without throwing up the bagel I ate before leaving my home. Then I signed my reports quickly and went back to the station, knowing full well that now I wouldn't be able to stop myself from sleuthing. I'd always wanted to be FBI, but I made it to the federal marshals. I stuck with it. Remembering Jim's words and now obsessed by this gruesome death, I decided to make a move. I decided to inspect the strange shipping containers that were coming from Asia, China and Japan most specifically. I also decided to go at night when they packed and unpacked the ships. They were at the docks from 7pm until 7am, 12 hours to restock on fuel, food, and unpack a few things. I'd have to get on one of these ships, but without a warrant, I wouldn't be able to do it easily. So, with the help of Jim, a notepad, and a harbor employee uniform, I was ready for a routine inspection. With my white hat, nobody stopped me as I climbed the ship, but I did get a few looks. The captain came to talk to me, said a vague speech about him having to worry about something. I wasn't here to open his containers. I was just instructed to check if regulations were respected. You know, yada, yada, yada. I gave him some bullshit story. Then I'd be here an hour tops, and then I'd be gone like the wind. Well, after a bit of complaining, the guy left me to my own device, and I started digging. First, the main deck. A few empty containers and a few others that resonated not so empty and marked with some strange Asian symbols. I mean, I couldn't tell which was which between Chinese or Japanese. I admit, I'm not well-versed enough in languages to know which is which. I slammed my flashlight against the side of one of them, and heard a strange noise coming from the inside. It sounded metallic, but something moved, and so I slammed again, hoping for another noise, which didn't come. And with a frown on my face, I moved on below deck. The air inside the ship was stale, had a strong, pungent smell to it. Something not too unlike the smell of mold and a bit of iron. I would have said it smelled like blood, but it wasn't exactly like that. It was even more metallic. Breathing through my nose, I could almost taste it on my tongue. 
uh, reached an area where there was much smaller containers. The room they were being held in was much hotter than I expected, indefinitely heavy in humidity. When I touched one of the containers, it was hot, and I felt a small, consistent thump to it, as if the shipping container itself had a heartbeat. But I guess there was probably some sort of equipment inside of it. Maybe there was something in these containers that needed to be kept warm and humid, and it was that equipment that made me feel like the containers had a pulse. Whatever reason that was, I didn't particularly like the feeling of my sweat-drenched Marshall's vest sticking to my skin. I didn't want to stay longer than I needed to in this room. As I turned around to leave and explore more of the ship, I heard a giggle. Very much like a little girl's giggle. It even sounded similar to what my little Leah would laugh at. I looked around and pointed my flashlight in front of me. Anyone in there? There's no answer. I started walking toward the shipping containers again. As I walked between two of them, I realized the heat was unbearable. I sighed heavily and kept advancing nonetheless, as I was certain I heard a little girl's voice. Hey, come forward. You don't have to be afraid. I said in my most polite and softest voice I could muster, but no answer came. Maybe I had imagined it, after all. Plus, that heat was starting to make gross beads of sweat roll down my spine. I was pretty sure my shirt and vest were soaked at this point. Don't forget, I'm wearing an extra layer of clothing over this. And so I turned around and returned above the deck since below was only the ship's employees' sleeping quarters and the cafeteria. I've been on a few cargo ships in my lifetime, and these two floors were the only places possible for shipment. As I was heading back, I turned around, and it was staring right at me. I couldn't see its face. It was like it had been replaced by a void. A dark circle blurred any possible features that would have made that little girl recognizable. Her dark hair floated above her head eerily as she giggled and brought a scarily white, bony finger up to where her lips would be. That white baby doll covered in tiny yellow ducks and little pink hearts did nothing to ease me. I couldn't see her face. When I tried to point my flashlight at her face, she dashed at me. I immediately pulled my gun from my holster and shot her in the face once, then the body. Since the bullet just disappeared in the void, it didn't seem to stop her. And a very metal screech escaped the little girl's body, and black fluid stained the ground before she ran between two containers on my left. I took this opportunity to run out, lock, and close the heavy metal doors behind me. My heart was in a vice, and I could feel it pounding in my throat and against my temples. As I made my way back up to the main deck, I barely heard the captain screaming at me. I said, there's a monster down there a couple of times, but I was mostly trying to get off the ship. Now, Normally, the average Joe would take this experience as a cue to move on to simpler things, to get out of there. You know, forget about the whole thing. There are things that are better left alone, right? God, I wish I'd been an average Joe. I did take a few days off, saying I was stressed, 
but I spent all my days researching the series of symbols I'd found on the shipping containers. And after a few days of researching, of asking colleagues and friends that work in China and Japan, I finally got the name of a company. It didn't lead me further, though, as the company's website wasn't written in English at all. And even with the help of Google Translate, I couldn't get most of what was written. I had to ask my wife about it. My wife studied for two years in Tokyo, so maybe she could help. Unfortunately, it was Chinese, and I had to use my resources to find someone who could translate the website. And it was basically a medical company whose vague goal was to develop past human ability, or something about enhancements for athletes, vitamins, and the likes. It didn't make much sense to me, so I kept digging. I kept digging, and it led me straight to a shipping yard. And there's a freight carrier there that was about to be shipping back to China. I found a large metal box, not a container, mind you, that was covered in small writing. It looked Chinese, but the symbols were different than the first company, so maybe it wasn't Chinese. It might be Japanese for all I know. There wasn't really a reason I could think of for China and Japan to work together, but maybe Japan was still looking to get revenge over World War II, or maybe China was bitter about the new trade war, well, thanks to our president. Hell, uh, to be honest, this started to sound like a huge conspiracy theory, so I stopped the thoughts and kept looking over the weird metal box. After further inspection... I found an address in the bottom corner of the box, and that address was very much written in our common alphabet, and in English at that. Guess where it led? Vancouver. Fucking Canada. I thought about Richard again, his lack of face and open view internal organs for a flash. I shook my head to tear away the image. Unfortunately... A sight like that isn't easy to forget. It's not like you shake it off like a handshake. With a deep breath, I managed to calm down again and noted the address. And guess who just suddenly decided to go fishing for a few days? This guy. I told my wife I'd be back by Monday, packed my car with fishing-related stuff, and made my way to Vancouver. It was about a 13-hour drive from where I lived. I could do it without a break. I was exhausted on the first night, though, so I decided to go do my exploring during the day this time. I took my car as near as the address my GPS found, and soon reached a gated area. Not exactly a good sign, and if I had been a good marshal, I'd have turned around and returned with a warrant and some Canadian officials, but at this point... I thought I pretty much established that I was willing to bend the laws to get answers. It wasn't only about Richards anymore, or the complaints from the apartment complex. It was much bigger than that, much bigger than me, much bigger than anything I'd seen, and it involved four different governments. What were they doing in Canada? Why did Richard die at the harbor? Why are China and Japan collaborating? And what was that creepy little faceless girl I saw? I just couldn't let it go. 
So I took my car back and went back until I could find a safe spot to park where nobody of importance from that gated place could see my vehicle. Then I walked into the forested area toward the gate. I could see it in the distance, but most interesting is that a little further past the limits, I saw another gated area. Just four walls of fence protecting nothing. And it's when I got closer that I realized there was a trap on the ground. Unfortunately, this fence looked electrified, and the gate had a digital touchpad. I wouldn't be able to open it on my own. But I knew a guy. A few, actually, that could. I returned to my motel, called on my guys for a favor, and promised a big cash payout if they helped. They were all at the motel within the next ten hours, and were talking about what I'd seen. I told them about the docks and got a few shifty looks, but fortunately, the guy who led them was an old friend of mine. We served together in the past, and he knew I wasn't a lunatic, a fool, and a liar. He trusted the information I gave him, and they prepared, and they armed themselves. We also knew how illegal this operation was going to be, but at this point, I was far too invested to turn my heels and run on this. We returned to the fenced area during the night. One of his guys hacked into the digital system and unlocked the door, and then we opened the trap. Once down, we quickly realized that we stepped into something we shouldn't have. If we got caught, it wasn't just a fine we would be getting for trespassing, but probably a one-way ticket to one of those highly secret prisons not even Guantanamo can compare to. We'd have to hope it wouldn't be a foreign one, at least. The area we entered was dark. We were about ten guys, all armed up and suited up. We moved quietly, and the first hallway we entered couldn't be any white if they painted it with a perfect white. The smell of cleaning products reached our nose, and the perfect ventilation system was buzzing quietly above us. This place was like an underground bunker slash science lab, and it looked modern and new. There wasn't a speckle of dust anywhere. It looked like the whole place had been cleaned prior to our entrance. I also couldn't hear any noise from the main hallway as we entered. It's a few turns later that we met our first soldier, and my guy slit his throat quietly as to not alert others around. However, As soon as the dead guy's body hit the ground, an alarm blared through the entire bunker. The lights were dimmed and nothing but flashing red lights illuminated the hallway. It felt like I was in a video game. I heard running coming towards us, and less than a minute later, our group was assaulted on both sides from what I could only guess was a mix of Canadian, Japanese, and Chinese soldiers. We lost two of the guys in this fight and we pushed forward further. Instructions in Japanese were blared through the speakers, and I heard the telltale sounds of metal doors closing. They were trapping us, putting us in quarantine. But that was not the worst of it. As we shot back and ran throughout the bunker, I heard a giggle, and then several giggles. I screamed at the boys to push forward, and we reached an open area where white and red mixed in the most horrific painting of gore and purity. The sanitized white walls were covered in blood, and not because we shot Japanese and Canadian soldiers against it, 
but because they'd been torn to shreds like poor Richard. There was one last announcement on the speakers, and we heard a scream and gurgling noise. Something bad was happening beyond those metal doors. Unfortunately, what was happening to them was the least of our troubles. When I saw the first creepy little faceless monster, I shot at it until I had nothing left to shoot at. And though it fell to the ground, I knew from the creepy giggling around us that we were not alone. I gave the order to dash back toward the exit, but the exit had been sealed off with one of those heavy metal doors. An explosive expert in my guy's team started to set up a charge when more of those creepy laughing little monsters started to appear. One of them moved so fast, I couldn't do a thing to stop it. And the man at my left had his scream swallowed by the monster's lack of face. When it pulled away, his skull had been wiped clean, and the monster was burying its large metallic claws. The little girls didn't have arms. All that was left were claws so sharp, cutting through a man seemed effortless. I saw the monster bury itself in my teammate's torso, and then there was a loud, disgusting, sickening slurping noise. I grabbed his gun and started shooting at the monsters as more of my teammates fell at my side. We retreated toward the bomber, who was setting up an explosive for the door, and shot at any monster that tried to approach us. They were strange creatures. It just wasn't little girls with metallic arms, but also slithering red serpents. They moved so damn fast we could barely see them coming. I heard the telltale sound of bodies hitting the floor, and loud and wet noises as they were being ripped apart like they were vulgar bags of meat. I never thought it would be this easy to tear into a human. But these monsters or creatures really made me realize how vulnerable we really were. The bomb tech finally shouted, the charge was ready. He backed away and he started shooting at the creatures with us. Then we turned a corner and he pressed the button. The moment he pressed that button, a monster sucked his face clean and gutted him from dick to chin. As I dashed to see if the explosion worked, I heard the sound of his guts splattering to the floor. The metal door didn't fall entirely, but where the charge exploded was a hole big enough for us to pass through. I dashed through it, hoping to find the exit. Unfortunately, the hole we went down the first time had been sealed, and we had to keep running forward in a direction we knew nothing about. Metal noises and giggles filled the atmosphere, and I was nearly out of bullets. After running and shooting at everything that moved for a while, I finally found a door with symbols I recognized. I kicked the door open, since it wasn't metal. It didn't have a digital keypad, and we found the poor dead speaker guy. Well, what was left of him? He was still sitting on his chair, viscera dangling out of his body. I saw a control panel with a lot of buttons and heard giggles behind me. And only then did I realize that out of the ten guys, we were left with three. Myself, my guy, and one of his men. They closed the door and we heard scratching on it. Scratching turned to clawing, which then turned to outright shredding of metal. I knew we didn't have much time before these things would make their way inside, so I read the control panel as fast as I could. 
The sound of the giggles, plus the alarm that was still blaring, made my skin crawl. I didn't know whether it was blood or sweat that dripped down my back. I could feel something sting, so I knew I had been cut at some point, but the adrenaline was keeping me from feeling anything but the tantalizing amount of fear rushing through my system. And then there it was. A kill switch. A self-destruct switch, as well as the control for the quarantine doors. I undid them all and pressed the kill switch. I had no idea how long we had, but we had no other choice. We opened the door, shooting like crazy and making our way through. I made it through, so did my buddy, but I didn't stay behind to check on the third guy. I ran back towards the exit, hoping that my sense of direction wasn't failing me. It didn't. I climbed back up and ran through the forest, hearing steps behind me and hoping that it was still my buddy. I didn't stop running until I heard the explosion in the distance. I felt the ground vibrate beneath my feet. And then, I started running again until I was in my car with my buddy, and we drove away as fast as we could. Now, it's been a couple of weeks, and I'm writing this all down. I did manage to grab a couple of files while we were in the bunker, and I haven't returned to my wife yet. I did call her from a payphone a few hours away, and she said people in red suits were looking for me, as well as the Department of Justice. She said I'm wanted for terrorism. Terrorism.